don't feel so good. Hello and welcome to the Poison Cast, a program dedicated to explaining the deadly science behind toxins, venoms, and chemicals. On this inaugural episode of our show, we're going to travel deep inside the human body and investigate just how the venom from the black mamba can kill you. My name is Scott Barnett, and I'm a PhD candidate in cell and molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada School of Medicine. I started this podcast because I love molecular biology, and I find it fascinating that just these tiny amounts of poisons and toxins can kill you, and I wanted to learn more about it, so I decided to take you along on the journey with me. So the Black Mamba. The Black Mamba is nothing short of terrifying. Uh, And I'm not just talking about those with ophidiophobia. Don't worry, I had to Google it too. That's a fear of snakes, just in case you're wondering. Now, if you're a fan of the movie Kill Bill, you're going to remember that the Black Mamba plays a nice little role in the film. And it also plays an important part in one of my favorite books growing up, The Power of One by Bryce Courtney, which I highly recommend. But besides the cultural references to the snakes from my past, there's a very good reason why I'm focusing on this snake. The Black Mamba, by many accounts, is the most scary snake on the planet. And I'm going to explain why. We'll get into some real detail here. So if you find yourself in Africa and you come across this nice, svelte, sand brown colored looking snake that has a mouth that's as black as tar, there's a good chance that's the last thing you're going to see before before you shuffle off your mortal coil. All right, so back to why I picked uh, snakes in general for this first episode of the Poison Cast. Snakes hold a special nightmarish place in the macabre imaginations of humans. You know, in fact, most mammals are terrified of snakes, and for good reason. Worldwide, there are between, or excuse me, there are approximately 20,000 snake bite deaths every single year, most of which are in the Asian subcontinent, Africa. But by most estimates, there are many, many more of these. Some people say up to 60,000 because so many of these bites happen in rural areas. And they're never reported, so they don't fall into the statistical analysis. Now, if you live in America, you can breathe a bit easier. While there are approximately seven to 8,000 bites on average each year in the U.S. by venomous snakes, last year there were only five reported deaths in the entire country. Now, this is due to a few things. You know, First of all, we have better access to medicine than a lot of the world. We have better access to anti-venoms. And the most common snake bite in America, we have venomous snake is going to be from a um, going to be from a rattlesnake and those are often non-lethal although very very painful so one might naturally think that my inclination would be go to the most deadly snake i could possibly find you know interestingly trying to identify the most poisonous snake is a very hard question to answer from a pure like poison potency perspective the winner by far is the Taipan. It has something called an LD50, which we'll get into later, a 0.025 milligrams per kilogram. If you want to break that down into what that actually means, it's about the size of a pencil tip from a mechanical pencil. If you were to break that off, that's about the volume you need to kill an adult. It's completely crazy. But it's hard to make a top 10 snake list because it's the deadliness comes down to like a combination of factors, such as how potent the cocktail of poisons is, as with the Taipan, but also um, like how long it takes the poison to get into your system, work its way through, find its targets, how capable your body is of ridding itself of the poison, 
And even more diffuse criteria, which are often the most important, such as like how likely you are to get bitten by the snake. For instance, the Belcher sea snake, which makes many of the like the number one spot in a lot of lists for the most poisonous snake, is is fine, but it's a very reclusive and docile snake. People can handle them, and it's very unlikely that you're going to get bit unless you really piss it off. So it's not very likely that you will ever get bit by a Belcher sea snake. The black mama, on the other hand, is highly aggressive and has actually been known to actively go after humans in its path rather than slither away like most snakes do when they're dealing with non-prey animals that they come across. But above all, I think that by far the most important criteria for picking the most deadly snake is how much venom the snake actually injects into you. You know, all of the top 10 most deadly snakes on the planet are extremely capable of killing humans without any problem at all. But often what it comes down to is how much the venom injects. You know, the black mamba, when it comes to this criteria, is no prude. On average, it will administer five to six times the lethal dose uh, it takes to kill a human when it bites. So that's... For me, part of the reason why it goes to the top of the list. So I'd mentioned this in the primer episode, but uh, but you don't have to go back and listen to that now. We're already into this here. I'm gonna have two tiers uh, when I explain the science behind the black mamba. One will be tier one, and I'm gonna, that's basically meant for any scientifically curious layperson. If you if you're interested in this, you're gonna be, and you care about science, you're gonna do fine. The second part is a bit more technical, probably meant for people with a little bit of a background in molecular biology or biochemistry. But we're gonna go ahead and get into tier one, and you're gonna like this here. So, what makes snakes venom so much more potent than other toxins is the fact that they that snakes have these sharp tooth-like stabby things, which we colloquially refer to as fangs, that inject the poison directly into the muscle or bloodstream, bypassing the stomach, the intestinal tract, the lungs, all those sort of things. And this is a really important factor here. If um, if the toxin is injected directly into your blood, it pretty much hits your system all at once. It's like the difference between eating a pop brownie or doing a line of Coke. Not that I would know anything about either of those but uh one you know takes a long time to get in your system the other is like hey how you doing it's right there for you the other half is this is that the stomach is a very interesting organ for for poisons to go into the stomach is highly acidic as most of you know and part of your intestinal tracts are highly basic so you have these two swings of a highly acidic to a highly basic environment this is like a a, a gauntlet that a protein does not want to go down venom itself is is just a protein made by the snake uh it's it's a completely natural protein and it folds into a very specific shape um and with when if it's not in that shape it's unable to to act on its target and so when you get this protein you put it in a highly acidic environment like your stomach there's a very good chance that that protein is going to change its shape because of the acid in your stomach and it's either going to be less effective or not effective at all on the target it's trying to to find in this case uh, the neurons in your brain so that's part of the reason why it's so much why snakes are so much more deadly than a lot of other poisons now of course, it goes much deeper than that. The black mamba has an LD50 of 0.28 milligrams per kilogram, which is about 19 milligrams for a 150-pound adult. 
Thanks, Poindexter. I'm sure you're thinking that's very easy to visualize and very helpful, right? I'm going to go tell all my friends about that. If you want to think about it in terms of volume, it's about the size of Washington's nose on a quarter. If you were to do a little bubble there. In fact, I work in a molecular biology laboratory and we have a very highly accurate microbalance. And I went and I put 19 milligrams worth of water on there, which would be as far as volume, approximately the same size. And I took a photo of it. So if you go to poisoncast.com and you click on this uh, episode, which is the Black Mama episode, you'll see exactly how much venom it would take to kill you. And it's, it's depressingly small. Couple that with the fact that the Black Mama will deliver 100 to 200 milligrams per dose. Uh, as much as 400 has been recorded, and you only need 19 to kill you. It's not going to be a good day when you do this. Um, the Taipan, if we go back to that one, which was also like drop by drop the most deadly, is actually 10 times more poisonous, drop for drop, than the Black Mama. So pretty, pretty scary stuff there. So a very brief side note on LD50. I've mentioned it a couple times in the show already. It stands for lethal dose 50%. And what that means is it's the amount of poison, toxin, antigen, whatever it is, that it would take once introduced into a person, animal, or, or organism to kill 50% of that organism or the number of those organisms. So if you had 100 mice lined up, it's the amount of poison it would take to kill half of those mice. So half would live, half would die. And it's a way that scientists use to determine kind of a mean amount of, of poison it's going to, to take to kill an individual. You can find the LD50 for pretty much anything, uh, whether it be uh, Tylenol, uh, Venom, like we've talked about here. Uh, there's LD50s for for water, for caffeine. Caffeine is actually surprising because you need not nearly as much as you would expect. But you can you can Google LD50 and then look up whatever whatever. Uh, whatever you're interested in, whether that be a, a drug you take every day or, or a toxin like we've been talking about here. So uh, we'll talk about LD50s a lot during the series of shows, so I just wanted to briefly explain that. And if you're unfortunate enough to be bit by a black mama, you've got as little as 20 minutes, as much as an hour to live if you don't get any sort of anti-venom, uh, there's a combination of factors depending on your own personal health, how deep the bite is, or did it get directly into the bloodstream. There's, there are many factors that determine that 20 minutes to an hour, but you don't have a lot of time. And if you do not get anti-venom, the Black Mamba is 100% fatal. There's, there's no hope of you, of you living. It's that, it's that potent here. So what is this venom and how does it work here? Within, uh, within snakes, there are three different types of venoms you can come across here, or I should say toxins, because many snakes have multiple types of these. They are hemotoxins, myotoxins, and neurotoxins. Oh, all these big scary words. Hemo just means blood. So there are there are toxins that will attack your blood directly, and they may prevent like oxygen transport. So in a sense, you would be drowning above water because you can't get the oxygen to your system. Not a great way to go. There are myotoxins. Myo is a Latin or Greek, I don't remember, for, for muscle. Um, so these will attack your muscles, cause your muscles to atrophy. They might attack your diaphragm so you can't breathe, or they might just cause just complete breakdown of, of general skeletal muscle. And then the third class are neurotoxins. And these are toxins that go into your brain, 
bind your neurons and then they they affect how your neurons fire they either increase or decrease the firing rate of your neurons and that ends up killing you there and that's how our black mamba works the belcher sea snake for instance uses all three of these which makes it very 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 deadly here but the just as effective but only using the neurotoxin side is the black venom and these are called black mamba and these are called dendrotoxins these are a class of presynaptic neurotoxins that are produced by the snake. The short story is that the poison will eventually find its way to your brain via the bloodstream. When it gets to the brain, it sees all these nice little neurons that are just sitting there doing their own thing. Um, that is to say the neurons are firing and keeping you active and alive like you would expect them to be. Uh, in fact, if you've just seen a black mamba, chances are those neurons are very active and they've just they've just uh, initiated your sympathetic nervous system, which is, sends a signal down to your adrenal glands that just sit above your kidney and your adrenal glands start secreting copious quantities of adrenaline, as you would hope that something like this would do. So back to the venom. Okay, so the venom has just reached your brain. And in order for those neurons to fire properly, and this is in the absence of venom, they need to exchange ions from the outside of the neuron to the inside of the neuron. And that's just a fancy way of saying that the neurons in your brain are like a battery. When they're resting, the inside of your neurons have a negative charge. And when they receive a signal to fire from, we'll say, seeing a black mamba and sending that signal to your brain, what happens is, is that they let a whole bunch of sodium into the cell. Sodium is a positive charge to it. So if the inside of the neuron is negative, all this sodium, which is positive, rushes into the cell, you're going to, that neuron is going to fire and that signal will propagate down the full length of the neuron. Um, and then it's going to initiate the next neuron of the chain to fire. And then that will keep going until the brain has done what it needs to do to send the signal along. Now, after it fires and sends that signal, it's very important for the neuron to return to this negative state on the inside of the that, that cell before it fires again, or it can't fire again. And one of the ways it does this is it takes potassium, which is a positive uh, charged neuron, just like the sodium, and it forces it outside of the cell. So you have this neuron, it's negative on the inside, all the sodium rushes in, which is positive, causes the inside of the neuron to be positive, that cell fires, and now the cell immediately starts pushing potassium outside to make the inside of that neuron fire again. And then it has ways to get rid of the sodium and all that down the stream. But don't worry about that. So it goes from a negative to a positive, back to a negative, and then it can repeat that indefinitely, and it does. So the venom from our friend, the black mamba, binds to that channel in the neuron, the one that is responsible for pushing just potassium outside of the cell. And when it binds to that channel, it stops that channel from pushing the sodium out. And the end result of this is that the neuron is stuck in the on position and it can't stop firing. Now, this is very bad. This leads to severe muscle contractions and you eventually go into convulsions and you stop breathing. Needless to say, this is a pretty unfortunate way to go. The solution to this, and the only, your body's not capable of dealing with this, is this is a nuclear bomb going off in, in your brain, and you're, you're, you're done with. The way we fix this is via antivenom. And a lot of people have heard of antivenom. Well, a lot of people, anyone listening to the show, I'm sure has heard of antivenom. But you may not actually know how it works. And antivenom is really, really cool. And it's one of these things where we use the poison itself to create the antidote, which seems very counterintuitive, but, but it works very well. 
So anti-venom. Anytime your body encounters something foreign that it doesn't want, it's going to activate your immune system. Your immune system, through a series of steps, will create antibodies. Antibodies are just these little Y-shaped molecules that will bind to whatever the whatever the antigen, the negative thing in your body is, whether it be a flu virus or a bacteria or snake venom, and it will it will bind to that and it will mark it and it will do one of two things. It's either going to tell your body to get rid of it. It's going to be a little flag waving thing saying we need to get this out of our system and then it will be chewed up and dealt with, or it will bind to it in a way that that molecule can no longer bind to its target. So in the case of the venom, if you had an antibody to this venom, it would bind to that venom molecule and that venom molecule now, because it's got this big clunky antibody stuck to it, it won't be able to bind to that channel we had talked about. So it's rendered inactive and, and it's no longer dangerous. Now, if your body had enough time, days, even weeks, once the venom was injected into your body, it could actually create its own antibodies, its own anti-venom to it. The problem is, is that the venom acts so quickly that there's no there's no hope of, uh, of your body uh, having time to, to create these antibodies. So what they do instead is they take very, very small amounts of this poison and they inject it in other animals. Not enough to hurt the animal, but enough that the, that animal will create a an immune response to the venom and it will create a whole bunch of, of uh, antibodies to it. Then they take some of the blood of the animal. It's actually non-lethal. We do all the time to large animals and, and it doesn't kill them at all. We take some of that blood. We isolate those special antibodies that were designed just for that venom. And then you go ahead and you keep it in a little vial. And when you get bit by a black mamba, we can inject those antibodies back into you. And those will immediately bind to all of the venom floating through your system, and it will stop that venom from acting on your brain, the neurons in your brain, and you can go ahead and keep living. The reason it's very hard to keep anti or to keep uh, this anti venom around is that these the antibodies, which are the anti venom, they need to be kept at, at very specific temperatures. They need to be kept cool. Often they can't be frozen. It's not always the case, but often they can't be frozen, and they need to be kept right at four degrees Celsius. And where you need most of this anti-venom, you need good refrigeration. They only have a shelf life of a matter of months before they break down or they're not useful anymore. And these are really hard things to do. That, and they're extremely expensive. If you think of the process of milking the snake to get the venom, injecting it in animals, collecting those antibody um those antibodies from the animal, which they don't make that much of them, and then packaging that, keeping it cooled, shipping it throughout the planet, it can be extremely expensive. And all of these are really bad checks in the boxes to to someone in, we'll say, sub-Saharan Africa. Expensive, needs to be refrigerated, short half-life, so it, it won't last that long, um, and it needs to be injected within preferably minutes of, of being bitten by a snake. None of that will typically happen, and that's part of the reason why why these snake bites are so so lethal, is that it's just really hard to make that work here. Um, but that is that. So that's going to be the end of Tier 1. We're going to move on to Tier 2, and if you're not a scientist, please feel free to keep listening. Uh, you, there's probably a good chance you'll be able to pick up a lot of this here, but we're going to go a little bit into the technical aspects of the venom itself, the channel it's acting upon, and the biochemistry and molecular biology behind that. So let's get rolling. 
Tier two, welcome biochemist. So, uh, as I'd mentioned before, the black mamba venom is a dendrotoxin, and these are a class of presynaptic neurotoxins, and they're specifically produced by the black mamba snake family, and or I should say the mamba snake family. And the key is they they block particular subtypes of voltage gate and potassium channels and neurons, the KV1.1s to be specific, and we're going to talk more about that soon. And what they end up doing is they enhance the release of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction. So if you recall your neuromuscular biochemistry of acetylcholine, what happens is, is when your when your neuron sends a signal to fire uh, a, a muscle, that signal will travel down the neuron, down your spine, out to the neuromuscular junction at whatever muscle it's targeting. And the vesicles at the, the, the presynaptic uh, uh, side uh, of the neuron are going to release acetylcholine into that neuromuscular junction. Those acetylcholine molecules have two potential targets. They got muscarinic receptors and they got nicotinic. Muscarinic are G-protein coupled receptors. They will bind to that and they're going to cause downstream G-protein activity within the cell. But more commonly, what it will initiate a muscle contraction is binding as a ligand. Acetylcholine will act as a ligand on the nicotinic receptor. That is an ion channel, sodium-gated ion channel. Once that acetylcholine binds, you're going to get sodium influx into the cell and you're going to get a muscle contraction there. Now, because of their high potency and selectivity for potassium channels, the dendrotoxins have been proven to be extremely useful, too, as pharmacological tools for setting the structure and function of these ion channel uh, proteins. Uh, this largely comes down to electrophysiology. If, you're, if you've never done electrophysiology before, it's, it's a pretty fascinating science where you can measure uh, the individual ions moving in and out of a, uh, uh, moving in and out of a, through the membrane of a, of a cell. And if you want to study how a protein or how a channel works, you need something very specific to block that individual channel. And these dendrotoxins are very, very useful for blocking these KV1.1, 1.2 channels so for electrophysiological studies. So uh, a little bit back, more back to the dendrotoxins themselves. There are seven KDA proteins, seven kilodalton proteins, and they consist of a single peptide chain that's approximately anywhere between 57 to 60 amino acids long, depending on the splice variants. And and although there are common uh, homologs are common uh, because this is such a, a conserved uh, a toxin here that, that you can see these homologs form. All dendrotoxins are cross-linked by three disulfide bridges, which adds stability to the protein, and and it forms it, it helps the uh, keep the 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 tertiary structure of the of the protein intact here. Disulfide bridges are when you have uh, two sulfurs uh, from a cysteine that are uh, in disparate locations on the protein and they form this this covalent linkage between the sulfurs on the cysteines and it forms a very nice tight tertiary structure there. It is also a basic protein. Now, basic proteins have a net positive charge, and it's believed that these positively charged residues can play a critical role in the dendrotoxin's binding activity as they can make this potential interaction between the anionic site, the negatively charged amino acids on the channel, and the pore of the potassium channel, and it gives it a chance to bind there through hydrostatic interactions, or electric, excuse me, electrostatic interactions. It's also been proposed that the delta dendrotoxins uh, may have an off-center binding site, and their target 
different proteins, and this may inhibit the channel by altering the structure of the channel rather than physically blocking the pore. So there's an interesting variation there. But largely with these venoms, we're dealing not with the delta form. We're dealing with an alpha dendrotoxin. And as I said, these block KV1.1 and KV1.2 channels. The IC50 is pretty incredible. That's the inhibitory, just like the LD50, it's an inhibitory concentration 50%. And this is, or if, uh, yeah, so what it means is that this is the amount of the toxin it takes to bind to and inhibit 50% of the channels. And it's between 1.1 and 12 nanomolar uh, when they did these studies in site KV1.1 channels. That is that is such a beautifully small amount, and it's really, really nice. That's a nice low IC50. And what that, re, what that infers is that it has a very strong binding to that channel, uh, and it's unlikely that it, it takes a long time for that to dissociate from the channel. So a very little amount of the alpha dendrotoxin will bind to and stay bound to that kv 1.1 and 1.2 channel and uh and that's that's uh what makes it so 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 deadly um and that's when actually that directly correlates to if you have a small amount of a poison uh, uh if why if you have a very potent poison it's normally referring to like an ic or ec50 which means that you need very little and it's going to bind to and remain bound to whatever its target is for a very long time so the KV family can be divided into several subfamilies. Uh, the KV family are these channels, these, these voltage-gated potassium channels. And it's based on the sequences and, and the similarities between them. There are four subfamilies, KV1 through KV4. KV1 is largely what this is binding to, the poison, and that's called the shaker family. So if you see a KV shaker type channel, it's going to be a KV1. And it consists of a pore-forming alpha subunit that associates with different types of beta subunits. So it's a it's a it's it's hetero uh, hetero it's a heterolog. Excuse me. Um, each alpha subunit comprises of six hydrophobic transmembrane domains, and it has a p domain, a pore domain between the fifth and sixth. So if you imagine this going back and forth through the membrane six times uh, between the fifth and sixth is going to be your pore domain, uh, which resides in the membrane itself. The alpha subunit of the KV-1 family, uh, there are many mammalian homologs of this, this shaker variety like we talked about, and it was originally described in the Drosophila, it's, uh, the fruit fly, and this is common for a lot of these things that are identified first in the fruit fly. So it tells you how conserved this KV-1 family is if we're finding it from Drosophila all the way into higher order mammals like us. Um, found throughout the central nervous system and as i said it's an important side fact here that they are voltage-gated potassium channels and they're encoded by the kcna1 gene here they are activated by low voltage lvas low voltage activation and it will open with just a small amount of depolarization that is below the resting potential so as soon as that neuron uh receives a, 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 an action potential these kva these kv1s are going to kick into place to immediately trying to get that that to repolarize the cell get it back to that resting membrane potential it's also a fast delayed rectifying potassium channel which is interesting from a logical physiological standpoint but we won't go into that here um Neuro, neuronal deficiency or blockage of the KV 1.1, which is always interesting to see what happens there. Uh, so um, it leads to an increased transmitter release, respectively, which implies that the KV 1 is repolarizing the membrane and the axon. And KV 1.1 containing channels are critical to the this, this temporal precision during spike initiation. So when you when you when you get these depolarizations from the cell, this is really 
critical to temporal meaning time for for the timed repolarization of the cell here and mac mice lacking this K, kv 1.1 exhibit severe seizures and in and die prematurely they also experience ex, uh, enhanced pain sensation and this goes back to the poison and how it's acting on it by blocking the channel you initiate these seizures, which you get if you're bit by a black mamba, and unfortunately, it's much more painful. You have this enhanced enhanced pain sensation here. I will note that if you look up the poison, which I initially did, I always start with Wikipedia just to get some basic background here. They, they wrongly call it, a at one point in the article, a sodium-potassium pump, uh, the KV-1.1. Not accurate at all. Uh, it is not is it is highly selective for potassium. It flows against the the, the concentration gradient, and uh, it's not going to it's not it's not a pump an ATP pump or, or anything that that deals with potassium. So go ahead and ignore that part there. So if your brain isn't initial isn't fried yet, uh, yay for you. <laughs> uh, if you I'm gonna go go ahead and end uh, the tier two of this right now and just tell you if you if you have any questions about this poison about the channels about anything else if there's poisons you are interested in you want to learn more about i can't tell you how excited i would be to to dig into that and uh and go that route there with that being said we'll go ahead and put a bow on the first episode of the poison cast i'm very excited please go to thepoisoncast.com you can write comments here you can see the article itself you can see some of the things we talked about here. I've got some, uh, I got some structural uh, layouts of the venom itself, as well as uh, like I talked about earlier on the the picture of how much venom it takes to kill you from the black mamba on the quarter. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're gonna do lots of updates and fun things about poison on there. We are at PoisonCast, just at PoisonCast, and on Facebook we are Facebook.com/slash Death by Toxins and Venom. Poison cast and just about every other variation was taken already. So Twitter at PoisonCast and on Facebook, we are Facebook.com slash death by toxins and venom. So I really can't thank you guys enough for listening. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and really the only way we're gonna get the word out there is by you guys. It's uh it's would mean the world to me if you like this to go ahead and pass it along, maybe post a link on Facebook or do whatever it is you do to get the word out to your peeps. Uh, Thanks again, and we will see you on the next episode. Go team!